Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on Leviticus, and this time, Peter Lightheart, David Field, Alistair Roberts, and a very special guest, James Jordan, will be discussing the tabernacle. We are very excited to have Jim Jordan back on this episode, and he makes some excellent observations throughout it. Here, they'll discuss such things as the reasons why we need to know our way around the tabernacle. Peter Lightheart will actually give a description and a walkthrough of the tabernacle. They'll discuss how it's a portable Sinai, how God is present with his people in it, how the tabernacle is part of Israel's mission, and much, much more. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened and encouraged by listening in on this conversation. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today uh, with a group of contributors to the podcast. As usual, Alistair Roberts is joining us from England. He's on the line. We are still enjoying a visit from David Field, who was with us for the last couple of podcasts. He's still here in Birmingham, and so David is here and uh, is uh, going to he's going to contribute to the discussion. Uh, he will contribute, although he continues to say that he has nothing to say. You'll find that he'll find places to contribute. But the special guest that we have, the extra special, super special guest that we have today on the Theopolis podcast uh, is uh, the return of James Jordan. Jim, as many of you know, had uh, a couple of strokes uh, a little over a year and a half ago. He's been uh, recovering uh, and uh, has been improving, and we're glad to say that he's able to join us today for the podcast. So uh, first off, welcome back, Jim. Thank you. And uh, if you could tell people a little bit about your condition, current condition. We, we've, I tried to describe it a couple weeks ago, but uh, it'd be clearer and more accurate coming from you. Well, I don't know what you said about me, Peter, but uh, the, the fact is I had, uh, I had a stroke that uh, took me down. My wife says the elders were called in to anoint me with oil because I was near death, and I have recovered from that thanks to the uh, ministrations of the medical community here in Birmingham, which is quite good. It was not a stroke that um, left me speechless or unable to walk. I have uh, had a certain amount of dizziness as a result of gradually overcome. I'm gradually uh, recovering my work, but haven't yet authored any 600-page books. <laughs> uh, so I hope to get some uh, work done on projects that were started earlier and that I can get to now. My wife has been of tremendous help to me in um, working with Biblical Horizons, uh, kind of closing that out and turning everything over to Theopolis so it becomes their headache. And no You become one, our headache, Jim. Yes, uh, I become 
their headache. I, I, is that enough? That's great. Thank okay. You. Yeah. Jim was with us uh, last week at our uh, intensive course. I taught on the 10 words and uh, it, uh, I realized how much he was contributing and how important his contributions were. And I thought it's a good time to get Jim back on the podcast. Um, we need his voice and we need him to correct us when we're going off the rails as Alistair and I are no doubt commonly going off the rails and hopefully Jim can join us regularly in the future and uh, keep us on track. I'll do what I can, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> the topic for today is um, we're continuing our series in Leviticus that we started in the last episode. Uh, we're doing about a two-month series and we're focusing on the Levitical sacrifices, the offerings that are laid out in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. We may pick up other parts of Leviticus later on. Uh, Leviticus is, a, I think, a, a very foundational book, as we talked about in the previous episode. It's a foundational book for the rest of the Bible. It's really important for understanding worship, for understanding the atonement, uh, for understanding the character of the church and the, the, uh, the, uh, the calling that we have, the vocation we have as the body of Christ, as the temple of the Spirit. Uh, so it's an, it really is an important book for us to grasp, uh, but it's often a, a, a closed book for Christians. So we're trying to introduce it at least in, in part, little by little. Uh, what we want to do today is talk about the Old Covenant sanctuaries. We'll focus on the tabernacle, uh, the sanctuary that was built at the foot of Sinai. Uh, that's more than anything is to keep, keep it simpler so that we can uh, try to cover the basics at least in in one podcast. Uh, if we wanted to extend our understanding of the sanctuary theme and the sanctuaries in the Bible, we'd have to look not only at the tabernacle but all of the pre-tabernacle structures that inform the tabernacle. Michael Morales's book, Prefi the Tabernacle Prefigured, lays that out very nicely. Going back to Eden, looking at Noah's Ark, and looking at other structures that that feed into the tabernacle structure. And we'd also want to look at later sanctuaries. We'd want to look at the temple. We'd want to look at the visionary temple of Ezekiel. We'd want to look at uh, parts of Zechariah. We'd want to look into the New, set, New Testament, uh, things that Paul says about the sanctuary. We'd want to look at Revelation, of course. So the, the sanctuary is a huge theme in Scripture, and just to keep it manageable, we want to focus on the, uh, the tabernacle uh, with perhaps some excursions elsewhere. But the, the tabernacle is where the Levitical offerings were first offered, and so understanding how those offerings work, uh, what's happening to the animals, what's happening to the blood of the animal, where the different altars are located that might receive blood, those kinds of questions are things that we want to, we need to know our way around the tabernacle in order to do that. Let me give a, start by giving a real simple physical description of the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself consists of a tent, you could call it two tents, as uh, the book of Hebrews does, but it's a closed space that would in include the holy place and the most holy place. That's covered. That's an enclosed tent uh, with wooden walls that are covered over with uh, layers of curtain. Uh, surrounding that, that tent is a courtyard which has curtains hung on posts surrounding it, and there are certain pieces of furniture in the courtyard. So when you put up the whole tabernacle system, you end up with a physical space that's divided into three zones. The courtyard, which is open open air, surrounded by the curtain, 
uh, you have the holy place, which is the first room of the enclosed tent, and then the most holy place, which is the inner room of the tent. And in each of these areas, you have particular pieces of furniture. Uh, you have the uh, bronze altar of ascension offering or the bronze altar for animal offerings out in the courtyard. Uh, there's also a laver, uh, a bowl, a basin of water, which would be used to wash the portions of the sacrifice and also for the priests to wash their hands and feet as they go in and out of the tabernacle. If you move from the courtyard into the holy place, the first tent or the first room, uh, you'd find straight in front of you another altar. That's the golden altar, which is used for incense. Uh, to your right, you're moving from east to west. To your right uh, would be the table, uh, a wooden table, which is overlaid with gold. And there would be uh, loaves of bread, the bread of the face or the bread of the presence, show bread. Uh, and then to your left, to the south of the holy place, is a golden a lampstand with seven lamps that are on it. That's entirely made of gold, beaten out from gold. If you were to move from the holy place, still moving west from the holy place into the most holy place, you get into the inner sanctuary, and in the inner sanctuary is just the one piece of furniture, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that consists of two parts. The lower part is a box, a coffer, a chest, which is made of wood and is overlaid with gold inside and out. And the, the cover is uh, a golden slab, the cover of the tabernacle. And in the golden slab, you have two cherubim that are worked into one piece with the slab, and their wings are spread out above the, uh, above the, uh, the covering of the ark, and the wings of the cherubim form the throne of, throne of Yahweh. And so Yahweh's glory would be enthroned above the cherubim. So we, we can't um, give you, maybe we can give you a visual in some form. You can find it online. You can find various visual diagrams of the tabernacle uh, that would give you a, a, a visual idea of how these different zones work and their relative sizes and so on. But in, in very brief summary, that's, that's the area, the uh, environment in which Israelite priests worked and into which Israelites entered in order to offer animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices. Israelites did not actually enter into these covered zones, only the, uh, the courtyard area. They were not allowed to go into the holy areas on pain of death. Right. And so that gets us to one dimension of the symbolism of the sanctuary. There are some zones that are reserved for priests. The, the zone that's reserved for priests is the holy place. Holy place. There's a zone that is where lay Israelites are permitted. Uh, that's the courtyard. And then there's the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The Lord is uh, enthroned in glory there. The high priest goes in there once a year, but otherwise it's inaccessible to anyone. Uh, but the high priest is the one person who can go in past the curtain and into the, into the most holy place. So when you, when you think about the three zones uh, and the people that work in them or enter into them, then you can see that the tabernacle lays out architecturally a model of the organization of Israel's uh, religious hierarchy. That organization could also be connected to the story of Sinai. In many respects, we could see the tabernacle as a portable 
Sinai, where there are the different zones of the mountain that the different groups of people can access. Moses goes all the way up to the top, then the elders and others go into um, the mount onto the mountain itself, and others are not supposed to touch the mountain at all. But the mountain is covered with this dark cloud, and entering into that cloud is like entering into this dark tent that has glory within. Right. So the, the part of the implication of that would be when Israel leaves Sinai, they take the tabernacle, they dismantle the tabernacle, and they pack it up, the Levites transport it. And uh, in effect, what they're doing, you use the phrase portable Sinai, in effect, what they're doing is taking the holy mountain with them. So wherever they camp in the wilderness, they're able to, uh, as it were, ascend uh, and come to the presence of God. This adds a further dimension of how dangerous it is to be God's people, that now he's with them in the middle of the camp and the community throughout, so that those zones of increasing holiness, which are also zones of increasing glory, uh, are zones if you go into an area for which you are, have not been set apart, zones of uh, greater danger. And if you were to uh, either be in a zone or associate with an item which is above your holiness grade, then uh, remedy will be needed. Uh, Jim, you've written on, uh, David uh, referred to a uh, hierarchy or uh, degrees of glory as well as degrees of holiness. Right. And you've talked about that in From Glory to Glory is an essay that you wrote some years ago. Eons ago. <laughs> Eons ago. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, yes. Um, as, as David said, uh, zones of holiness are also zones of glory. And glory is associated with fire. And if you if you get the if you get holiness that you're not entitled to, you you also contract glory that you're not entitled to, and you could be uh, toast. Um, you could be roasted in fire that springs from God's presence. Um, these things are coordinate with one another. One of the things you develop in the essay is that the increasing glory is seen in the in the very materials that are used for the different um, for the different zones yeah yeah you go from uh, bronze to silver to gold uh, you go from uh, pure gold to fine gold to their segure gold mm -hmm. I don't have all this in in my brain right now, uh, but there are different degrees of gold. There are degrees of cloth. There's a scarlet cloth, a purple cloth, which is uh, somewhat between violet and scarlet, and then there's a violet cloth, which is the most holy cloth, the most like fire, a uh, violet cloth, apparently resembles fire and uh, for things to be uh, in, in Numbers chapter 4 you get 
uh, coverings that are put on top of each item, each piece of furniture of the tabernacle when it's carried through the wilderness uh, by itself. It has its own little tent around itself. And uh, it has its own little fire around itself, its own little curtain around itself. And uh, there are different degrees of fire, different degrees of curtain uh, around each item. There's a whole system here. Yeah. The, the, so the, the logic there is degrees of glory are measured by obviously the glory of the glory of Yahweh but particularly that glory of Yahweh appears as fire so the more in a sense the more fiery the material the more closely it resembles Yahweh and the and the more holy it is uh, gold is more fiery than bronze for example yes it would seem so yeah something i've found very helpful on the tabernacle is a piece that Joel Garver wrote for Biblical Horizons, or I think it was a two-part essay a few years back, where he talks about the parallels between the creation of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and talks about the seven-day pattern being played out within the creation of the tabernacle as well. So there are a series of key phrases that we find in the first half of the tabernacle's creation, which are making everything according to the pattern. And then in the second half, there are statements concerning uh, eternal statutes and um, something that should be carried out throughout your generations, these sorts of statements. And one refers to the forming stage, the other to the filling stage of the two halves of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And that can break down the creation of the tabernacle into very key stages. So the first day with the formless raw materials assembled and then covered with, overlaid with gold, the ark, the tap, the table, the lampstand are all created on that first day and they're covered with the radiance of the gold and the ark being God's heavenly throne. Um, all of these things are associated with the light of the first day. And then the second day, it's when the tabernacle tent itself, the firmament is created. The blue and the purple veil and the cherubim, all of that represents that firmament between heavens and earth. And then the third day is the brazen altar and the tabernacle court. And the altar would turn green over time, which might connect with the vegetation. Then you have the fourth day, which is the oil for the lampstand, um, corresponding with the great lights on the fourth day of creation. And then the fifth day is the garments of the priest, which correspond with the firmament, the tabernacle itself. It's a sort of external externalizing of the internalized glory of the tabernacle. And then the sixth day is the formation of Aaron and his sons. Um, their anointing as the spirit of God is given to Adam and breathed into Adam at the creation. And then the seventh day is the consecration and the establishment of worship. And I find that pattern very illuminating, both for understanding Genesis and also for understanding what takes place in the tabernacle. Yeah, so the tabernacle is a microcosm, a small-scale new creation that resembles the cosmos. And I think the, uh, the point I wanted to make uh, slipped my mind a moment ago with Jim, after Jim's comments. I think it, it's important, this is uh, the, the creation background would be one part of this. 
it's important to see the different the different elements and details of the tabernacle. It's important to see them as part of a, a, a system, a symbolic system, rather than what you find in the uh, laudable but often unilluminating efforts of patristic and medieval commentators who isolate different elements of the tabernacle. So Bede in his in his essay on the tabernacle, everything, everything is the two natures of Christ because he's looking at each individual item and asking, what does this mean? Well, it's got two elements to it. It's got wood and it's got gold. Gold is God's glory, wood is humanity. And so you've got these, it's an odd kind of incarnation when the divinity is on the outside of the humanity, but give, be that as it may, he's, he's looking at each individual item in isolation and not seeing the system. And that, that's a common earlier interpret, uh, way, mode of interpreting. It's right in the sense that they're looking for, de- looking for meaning in the details of the tabernacle, but it fails to see the, that the tabernacle forms a system. Part of, part of that system would be the, uh, the background of, uh, uh, of the creation week. The other thing I wanted to wanted to bring up um, bring up another dimension of the tabernacle symbolism, and it's in relation to the comments that David, you, and Jim both made about the danger of the tabernacle, which is absolutely true. You can think of the background to that is Genesis three, Genesis two and three, the formation of the garden, and then Adam and Eve's exclusion from the garden. And so, what's in the background of the tabernacle is the fact that Adam was originally permitted to be in God's presence in a garden setting and then removed. And if Adam had tried to get back into the garden the day after he was excluded, he would have faced some opposition, let's say, uh, from the cherubim. But uh, when, you, when you have that in the background and then you come to the tabernacle, it's the, same, it's the same principle that if somebody tries to get into God's space that's not supposed to be there, they also face consequences. Now that it's no longer cherubim, it's the human cherubim of the priests and Levites who guard the, guard the holy place. That's an important part of the tabernacle. But I think it, it's a mistake to think of that in isolation from what I think is has to be seen as the main thrust of the tabernacle, which is that God has established a zone where he is present to his people. Those restrictions are there, but those restrictions were there before. What's new with the tabernacle is that God has come near and he's now living among his people and human beings can now come into his presence, in a sense, in a way that they haven't since Adam was cast from the garden. Yeah. So the, the tabernacle is, is, is exclusive, but it's, I think the primary thrust is God has set up his house. He's inviting you in. It's a house for hospitality. If you want to come, you've got to be clean. If you got, want to come, you've got to go through these rites of sacrifice in order to approach. You can't come straight in. You can't come all the way in, but welcome. As long as you follow these protocols, then you're welcome. Yes, and I think that uh, the fact that Israel is among the nations set at the center of the world means that God has come into the midst of the, of the whole human race. The rest of the world is never actually absent from this system. Israel is there for the sake of the nations. The priests are there for the sake of Israel. Israel is there for the sake of the nations. Um, And we tend to forget that. There's a sense in which 
Leviticus is a literary sanctuary. Uh, it's organized as a chiastic structure with the Day of Coverings at the center. And the Day of Coverings is a day in which both Israel and the Gentiles within Israel uh, fast and um, respect the covering that God makes for their sin. Even though the Gentiles are not responsible for the Israelite law. Mm-hmm. And at the center of, of Leviticus are four Gentile laws, mm-hmm. laws that apply to the Gentiles as well as to Israel. And uh, that blooms out to the edge of, it, of Leviticus, but Leviticus, what we call Leviticus, is a book but it's it's actually the center of a deposit of revelation that God gives at Sinai, and it starts in uh, Exodus 20 and goes to Numbers 20. That's all one bunch of stuff. And uh, Leviticus is just the middle part of it, the sanctuary part of it, and if you move into that, then you move into these laws of ascension into God's presence in the early part of Leviticus that we'll look at. Yes. What uh, our Bibles mistranslate as offerings and sacrifices and use all this very obscure terminology that put it at distance from us instead of saying, God says, come on over to my house and uh, uh, bring along some bread and wine and, and, and let's have lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you get there, he says, we don't need this wine. We'll pour it out and, and uh, we'll have some of this unleavened bread. And, and there are all these rules, but that's what he's saying. Right. It's, <laughs> it's not complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just to uh, support the the point you were making at the beginning uh, about Leviticus and the Levitical system being for the sake of the Gentiles, um, a couple of couple of details uh, that point to that in in Numbers um, Numbers twenty eight and twenty nine, you have the schedule of offerings for particular days. So the daily offerings, the Sabbath offerings, the new moon offerings, the festival offerings, and that climaxes with the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, during which you have seventy bulls that are offered. Seventy is the number of nations throughout uh, throughout the throughout the Bible, and so at the climax of the liturgical calendar, there is that we're offering the nations up to the Lord at the day of Tabernacle uh, Feast of Tabernacles. The other thing that uh, this gets out of the tabernacle system per se, but if you look ahead to the temple, those points become even more explicit. Solomon. Uh, has a temple built with all of the offerings going on. But when he prays about what the temple is going to be used for, it's a house of prayer. His prayer in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 8 is a prayer that the Lord would hear future prayers, both from Israel and also from Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So uh, it becomes a house of prayer. You know, Isaiah says it's a house of prayer for all nations, but that's already there in the design. That's, what, that's why Solomon built it. 
and that's implicit in the dedication. The tabernacle looks like Israel withdrawing from the world to be with God. In fact, in fact, you know, this uh, the tabernacle is part of Israel's mission, and the services they do there is part of what uh, how they carry out their mission on the Gentiles. Part of their mission, also part of their maturation. The idea, uh, as Jim has just described, of God inviting his people to be with him and spend time with him, albeit with requirements that they uh, wash their hands or wear the right clothes or tidy up before them and after them. This people is a people in its relative infancy. And so the connection between uh, uh, there are various ways of um, structuring or analyzing the structure of the book of Leviticus, but often uh, that uh, the Day of Atonement in or propitiation in, in chapter 16 is seen as the end of a major section. And sometimes it might be it might be overstated, but sometimes the distinction between uh, chapters 1 to 16, where there is attention given to matters of zonal holiness and ways of coming safely closer to God, drawing near safely uh, to God, and those of 17 to 27, which, uh, again, we could qualify this almost endlessly, but a sort of character holiness. So a zonal holiness and a character holiness. A Once you as an infant people get close to the God who is your father, then one of the things that will be happening is that you are uh, becoming more like him. You are maturing. And so uh, there's that dimension of maturation as part of it too. And you can, you can make the point... Um Take the same point from a different direction that you uh, you have sanctuary rules how Israel's conduct themselves in the immediate presence of God. The second half of Leviticus, as it were, uh, is about the land and how they live in the land. But those are not those are not separated concerns. What they do before the presence of God kind of spreads out to life in the land. The holiness and purity that they're called to in the sanctuary is is uh, setting a pattern for social life. And if you look at the tabernacle and think about the tabernacle as it were from above, one of the things you might notice is it could be seen as like a human body. Um, the ark and the most holy place that's associated with the head and the, um, the very the head of the human body, then the um, holy place with the lampstand on one hand, the table on the other, literally one hand, one and the other hand, the laver, which is associated with the generative organs and the the bronze altar, which is the earth. And that picture is filled out to some extent in the building of the temple, where you later have the addition between the, what becomes, the laver becomes a sea. And then between the bronze altar and the laver and the sea, you have the um, two great pillars, the establishing pillars that are associated with feet. And then you have five lampstands on either side associated with fingers on a hand. And I think what we're seeing there is that as part of a broader system, the tabernacle connects us to Sinai, it connects us to the heavenly tabernacle that we'll see in Hebrews and elsewhere. But it's also a macrocosm of the human body, and the human body is a microcosm of the temple. 
our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the tabernacle and the temple display is that Israel is supposed to, in its very body, be a site of God's dwelling. And as the people of God mature, it's not just that God wants to dwell dwell in a tent or a building in their midst. God wants to dwell in a people, in human beings. And the body form of the tabernacle and temple, I think, displays that broader orientation of um, redemptive history towards the dwelling in human flesh. It's an incarnational movement. So the the John's use of uh, skinao, pitch a tent, he pitched a tent, the word pitched a tent in flesh. Paul's use of temple of the Holy Spirit uh, to describe the church, the individual Christian, both of them. Uh, this isn't this isn't an imposition on the theology of temple and sanctuary in the Old Testament, but this is something he's he could draw out of what's actually revealed there. The other the other direction that makes me think is something might David might comment on is the if that's the case, then what might that imply about um, uh, discipleship? Uh, you used in in uh, one of your web essays for Theopolis, you used uh, among other things you listed off a dozen or two dozen scripture passages that support a discipline of self-examination. Several of them had to do with the temple, Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Um, I don't know if you've mentioned Ezekiel's inspection of the temple uh, in Ezekiel 8, but he, he goes through and finds all the idols. But if, if, the, if the tabernacle is a human body and different parts of the tabernacle correlate to different faculties or dimensions of human existence, then that might have that might give us some insight into, you know, might have ethical insight or insight for us as we think about discipleship. Well, thank you for the invitation to comment. I'm not sure I've got much more to say than that. Uh, yes, the implication is that not only should there be attention to uh, any um, obstacles or immaturities uh, or um, uncleannesses within the, the community, but that precisely along the lines that Alistair's been describing, that can be legitimately individualized as well. I think that uh, recall Jim saying probably multiple times in the past, thinking about the, the tabernacle and the, the different entryways being guarded by armed Levites and priests as a paradigm for, again, thinking about discipleship. If we're temples of the Spirit, then part of what that means is standing guard at the various gateways of our body, uh, so that we resist. We're not just we're not just um, inspecting and clearing cleaning out what has gotten in, but we're resisting things from entering. Yes. Would you care to elaborate, Jim? No, I think you elaborated <laughs> just fine, Peter. <laughs> But you can elaborate by going to Ezekiel's Ezekiel's temple. Uh, there's a. Do you want a verse? We all want a verse, Jim. The Give ver us a verse. A verse. That's in Ezekiel. Is it forty-three ten? Yeah, forty-three ten. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, so that they may be ashamed of their. Uh, liabilities and let them measure the plan and if they're ashamed of all that they have done 
make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, all its laws. Write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design, all its statutes, and do them. So I think what I like to do is go back to Ezekiel 41 and start reading and say, how guilty do you feel? (laughs) Uh, And uh, somehow or other, uh, simply reading the architecture of this house and the walls doesn't immediately connect with us in making us feel uh, ashamed and guilty because it's not a vocabulary that we're used to. And yet, Yahweh expects it to be. And it, it is, in some sense, the exits and entrances, as I was saying earlier, we were saying, guard all those things. Mm-hmm. And this whole, once you get that, then the whole section here is full of stuff about guarding your heart. Yeah, so then that that assumes then the connection we've been talking about, which is that there's a, a there's an analogy between the sanctuary and the human person, and it, the analogy is close enough so that very detailed descriptions of the form of the architecture are taken as very specific challenges to human behavior. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and awaken shame and regret and guilt. So you know we should we should be uh, we should be looking at blueprints of the temple and suddenly have this feeling of conviction. Now, as I recall, when you uh, the reason I I knew the verse you were going to go to because the only reason that verse sticks in my head because I learned it from you many years ago, and uh, so I, I go back to it in in teaching a, a good bit. I think one of the things you were emphasizing at that point was the. You have clarity of lines and distinctions. You have straightness. Everything is, everything is square. Uh, everything is uh, designed according to a certain pattern. Uh, yeah, the guard, the guard, the guard gates at the doorways. So if if you look at a building or look at a blueprint, and everything is designed and shaped the way it is, and you look at your life, and it's just like a you know this amorphous mess with no shape, with no straight lines. You don't walk in a straight line. You don't, you know, you don't live straight. Uh, that's that's part of that's one of the specific ways the the design of a sanctuary might be a a conviction a way of convicting. Well, uh, one another aspect of that is uh, military movements. We have adopted oppression uh, sense of standing at attention and marching left and right in a very square fashion. But that comes from the angelic movements that you see in the book of Ezekiel. Angels always go straight up, geographically east and north. They measure the way they walk is then reproduced in the walls of the tabernacle and the temple. There are no oblique walls and uh, somehow or other God likes that stuff so 
You need to make your children walk that way and say, hey. Straight up, kid. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that, I mean, if I could just kind of wind this up and summarize. I think we've we've shown some, at least some trails that, that people could follow to think through how the tabernacle texts, the description of the tabernacle in Exodus, descriptions of other sanctuaries in Kings, Chronicles, uh, Ezekiel, Revelation can be of practical use. So if if we if we don't pick this up, if we read Exodus twenty five to thirty one, and we're just puzzled, and it doesn't awaken in us a desire to form our lives so that they resemble the pattern that's in the text, or we read Ezekiel and we're not ashamed, then that's a sign not of some flaw in the way God reveals Himself, but some. Uh, some absence in us or some lack in us, our ability to uh, grasp the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. He's chosen to reveal himself through these architectural patterns and architectural description, and uh, we're supposed to be attuned to those in a way that uh, they can have the impact on them that they're supposed to have. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.